Welcome to Romans Untangled, the podcast where we take a seemingly difficult book of the Bible and untangle it so that we can enjoy its beauty. Season 2, Episode 5, X equals 5. Now check your work. Romans chapter 4, the entire chapter, chapter 4, verses 1 to 25. 3X plus 6 equals 21. Now that's an algebraic equation I just said, and, and for some of you, just hearing that brings brings memories back from when you were in 8th or ninth grade in your math classes and you were just learning algebra for the very first time. And it was a joyous time. For others of you, I'm bringing up great pain. I I know this because I taught algebra to junior hires for six years, and I saw both of those expressions every day. And if you remember, you had to learn how to solve that equation that had a variable in them or a letter. And when you were done, you needed to check your answer. So you solved the equation. In this case, we had 3x plus 6 equals 21. And you had to subtract 6 from both sides. Now I had 3x equals 15. And then I had to divide by 3 on both sides. And I ended up with x equals 5. And again, some of you are going, oh, that was so fun. And others of you are are seriously having a mini panic attack at this moment. I understand that. So, but anyway, the point is, when you were done with that, the teacher would tell you, I would say, I want you to go back and check your answer to make sure you're right. So you would, instead of saying X, you would put five in there. And so you'd say three times five is 15 plus six equals 21. And you'd write this all down and you'd show that 21 equals 21. You'd put up, I even taught my kids to put a check mark there. And that was showing that you had checked your work. That's exactly what Romans four is. That's exactly what it is. And in this week's episode, uh, we're going to look at the solution that Paul had come up with, which was salvation through faith alone, by grace alone, in Christ alone, through God's word alone, for God's glory alone. Does that actually work in the equation of the Old Testament? So thanks for joining us. This is going to be a fun episode. This is Pastor Steve Treichler of Hope Community Church. I just got back from a Fairly chilly trip to the Panama City area of Florida. Had a really nice time, though, with with Carol, my lovely bride of of 30, going to be 34 years here this August. That's crazy. Um, And a few friends. We had a a wonderful time there, even though it was, uh, we only really saw about two hours of, of good sunlight. This season, if you remember, we are looking at a theological term each week. That's just a way for us to kind of understand some systematic theology and, and, and what these terms mean and how they can help us to better understand who God is. Last week, we looked at the incommunicable attributes of God. By incommunicable, we mean those attributes that God has that we don't have. They're they're kind of only God's. This week, we're going to look at the communicable attributes. And uh, there's something that uh, Jonathan King, who is works, uh, he's a theologian and he's a writer, he calls it this. He says, the communicable attributes of God describe God's intrinsic character, particularly in his activity towards creatures. These attributes are therefore predicted analogically of creatures, chiefly of those created in his image, unquote. So what the point here is, it's saying human beings are made in the image of God, and there's certain things that God gave to us, certainly not in the same capacity that that he has, but he gave those to us, and so we are then, therefore, an image of or a likeness of God in that. And so there's, classically, there's nine of these. Let me just read them through. 
They are God's goodness, God's love, God's mercy, God's grace, God's holiness, God's righteousness, God's veracity or his truthfulness, God's wisdom, and God's wrath. Now, again, as human beings, all of these characteristics we have in a small way by being made in the image of God. However, because of sin, they're all marred a bit, but they're still there. The image of God in us is never lost. It is marred, but it's not lost. And so God has these things in ever-increasing capacity, and he's given them to us, the communicable attributes, he's given them to us in a way that makes us like him. It's a beautiful, beautiful thing. Uh, If you want to do further study on that, you can go to any good systematic theology and look up the communicable attributes of God and just enjoy yourself with this. Now, let's get into Romans for this week. I got to remind you where we left last week. We looked last week at the issue of boasting. Where then is boasting? If the gospel's true, if if really what makes us okay is that uh, it's faith in Jesus Christ, it's not how how good we follow the rules, if we're born in the right family, if we if we do the do's and don't do the don'ts, if it's not all that, therefore what it really is, Paul's saying, is it comes outside of us. It's from God. It's a gift called grace. It's it's uh, something that comes through Christ. It's to God's glory, and it is unbelievably given as an act when we trust, when we have faith. It's through faith alone, right? Those are those things that we talked about. Uh, the Reformers called this the five solas. It was scripture alone, faith alone, grace alone, Christ alone, and glory to God alone, okay? And so this was what Paul's answer, this is what his answer was, is X equals six, right? That's what this is. Then he goes on and he says, uh, is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of the Gentiles too? Yes, of Gentiles too. Since there is only one God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through that same faith. So this is a radical statement. We're in chapter three, uh, verses 29 and 30. It's a radical statement because Jew and Gentiles are the same. And the answer is yes and no. And they are, they're all people, but they're not because Israel was the was the chosen chosen people, the chosen race. And it mattered for them because they were the perfect microcosm for the world. They had it as good as you can get it. They had Abraham. They had the blessings. They had the promises. They had the patriarchs. In other words, the they had the fathers, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, on right down the line, right? They had the Exodus. They had the miracles in, in that the, the Exodus brought about. They had Moses who brought the law. They had the kingdom when they finally got in the promised land and got kings. They had David. They had the prophets and on and on, and they had it as good as you can get, and yet they failed, and failed, and failed, and failed. I think the easiest things for thing for us, those of us who are not Jewish, would be to rip on Israel. Yeah, they, they just happened to get recorded nationally for their failures. Okay, we didn't. We would be the same, if not worse. And what the point of all this is, is everyone on earth is in trouble with God. And and Paul's answer here is that Jesus and only Jesus is the answer. Okay, so that's X equals five. That's what Paul says. So then we go back up to verse 31 of chapter three, and he says this, 
Do we then nullify the law by this faith? Not at all. Rather, we uphold the law. Do you see what he's doing here? The big question he's asking is, do we throw away the Old Testament then and now start over and go with Jesus? And Paul is saying, and this is big, he's saying, no. In fact, he says the phrase, not at all, or may it never be is a, probably a, a better translation. Uh, it's this phrase, me genoito. We'll see it several times. You've already saw it a couple times in chapter three earlier on. Uh, we'll see it as we keep going forward. It's very strong, no. In fact, there's one version of the Bible called the Cotton Patch Bible. It's written for folks down in the, in the, in the deep south in, in the 1970s. And the Cotton Patch Bible translates it, hell no right? Okay. Might be a little graphic there, but it's this idea of no way, no chance. Do we know? Do we get rid of the Old Testament? No, we do not. In fact, we're saying what he says here in the end of verse 31 is that this answer, X equals five, X equals Jesus. We, we get Jesus through faith by grace, uh, from the glory of God alone, by the word of God. Um, and salvation alone is found in him, right? That is the answer. And that fits in the equation. Okay. So like any good teacher, He'd say, well, check your work for me. All right. Paul says, I'm on it. And that's what Romans 4 is. So here we go. I'm going to read it and make some comments along the way. We're going to take a little buggy ride uh, after we get through the first three verses to the Old Testament passage to show you how Paul is making it clear that, that I am checking my work here thoroughly. Okay, here we go. Romans 4, we're going to do the whole chapter today and just make a few comments about it. Um, and again, pausing after verse 3. What then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh, discovered in this matter? And if, in fact, Abraham was justified by works, he had something to boast about, but not before God. What does the scripture say? And then he quotes from Genesis 15, verse uh, 6. Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Okay, so that's what... Paul's going to start here. So, so with a, a big deal for anyone reading the Old Testament, if you want to understand the nation of Israel, you go back to the beginning. And who is the beginning? The beginning is Abraham. Well, how did Abraham get right with God? Well, he says, what does scripture say? And so let's take a look at this in chapter 15. And we're going to actually read the whole chapter there too. So you see what's happening. So if you have a Bible with you, open it up to Genesis chapter 15. It's a huge deal. I know in one of my bonus episodes, I talked about the first 11 chapters of Genesis. It's big. Wish we'd had time to keep going on in Genesis. But uh, in that bonus episode, we, we hit the highlights of some of the most important things to kind of get as a beginning of the story before we got to Abraham. We meet Abraham in chapter 12. In chapter 15, this very famous passage comes up. After, and what's he's promised, just a minute here, he's promised uh, that he is going to get land, he's going to be blessed, and he's going to be a blessing to the nations, and he's also promised that he's going to have a lot of offspring. And here it goes. After this, this is Genesis 15, 1, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your very great reward. But Abram said, Sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless? And he's an old man at this time. And the one who will inherit my estate is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, you've given me no children. So a servant in my household will be my heir. Then the word of the Lord came to him. This man will not be your heir, but a son who is your own flesh and blood will be your heir. He took him outside and said, look up at the sky and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. 
Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. Okay, stop right there. What does he do? It's dark, right? He's in a tent or something. And 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 he says, go outside. And he looks up, like you've ever been in, in a very dark, no light pollution area, and you can see all the stars. We have a, an area in northern Minnesota called the Boundary Waters, and there's no light pollution. And you can see stars upon stars upon stars. And that's what Abraham sees, all of this. And God tells him, he says, that's going to be your offspring. And Abraham has the audacity to believe him. Verse six, Abraham believed the Lord and he, that's God, credited it to him as righteousness. It's just this, it's, well, that's an interesting phrase. In other words, Abraham's trust in God in this crazy thing about him providing kids, he then puts it into his bank account as righteousness or just or being just, Right? Then Abraham said, or excuse me, he, God says to Abraham, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur, the Ur, Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land and to take possession of it. So now he says, you're also going to get land. And Abraham wonders about that. And he says, but, so, but Abraham said, sovereign Lord, how can I know that I will gain possession of it? So the Lord said to him, bring me a heifer, a goat and a ram, each three years old, along with a dove and a young pigeon. One of my favorite verses in the Bible. Hey, God, how can I know that this is going to happen? Go get a cow. <laughs> what? And look at what happens. It says, verse 10 says, Abraham brought all these to him, cut them in two, and arranged the halves opposite each other. The birds, however, he did not cut in half. The birds of prey came down on the carcasses, but Abraham drove them away. It's like, what is going on here? This is one of those things where a little history is going to help you a lot. When two parties were going to make an agreement or a covenant... They would literally find an animal, they would slaughter it, cut it in half, lay the pieces on each side, and then the parties would, would recite the covenant or they would hold hands to indicate a togetherness on this, and they would walk in between those two pieces as they do that. And it's a way of making a promise. They called it cutting a covenant. And what it was ultimately saying is, if I don't keep this covenant with you, then may this be me, right? That's what it's saying. So God says, get me, a, get me a covenant. We're gonna give me a cow. We're gonna cut a covenant. So Abraham does that and listen what happens. As the sun was setting, Abram fell into a deep sleep and a thick and dreadful darkness came over him. Then the Lord said to him, know for certain that for 400 years, your descendants will be strangers in a country, not their own, and that they will be enslaved and mistreated there. He's already prophesying about before he has any kids. There's no kids yet. There's no descendants. He says, one day they're gonna go and they're gonna be enslaved in Egypt, right? But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, and afterward they will come out with great possessions. They'll plunder the land on the way out. You, however, will go to your ancestors in peace and be buried in, at a good old age. In the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here, for the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. So God's saying, when the sin of the Amorites reaches its full measure, I'm going to remove them from the land. Wow, that's interesting, isn't it? God's keeping an account of sins of people who don't have the word of God. The Amorites were, a, were, not, were not a Jewish people at all. They, were, they didn't have the word of God. They didn't have anything. And yet God says it's going to reach its full measure. In other words, remember from Romans one thirty two, where it says that even though they know, they, they, they know the righteousness of God and his decrees, they don't do those things, and they know they deserve death. And there's a little law in their heart. And, and there's even an accounting of that law, so much so that, that there's a land covenant with non Jewish nations, not just the Jewish nations, the Amorites here are going to get kicked out at some point. 
When the, this is verse 17 now. When the sun had set and darkness had fallen, a smoking firepot with a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. Okay, so remember from verse 17, where is Abraham? He's taking a nap in a deep sleep, it says. The sun had set, darkness falling, a smoking fire pot with a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham and said, here it is, to your descendants, I give this land from the Wadi of Egypt to the great river, the Euphrates, and the land of the Canaanites, Canaanites, Catamites, and a, and a bunch of other gigabytes here, a bunch of other, other lands, right? He's going to give this land and he promises and he makes it. But notice who makes the promise. Just God doesn't pull Abraham through there. Now, that's not insignificant. The promise is not at all, the promise is not at all uh, dependent upon Abraham. It's only dependent upon God. And that's what happens in Jesus Christ as well. It's not dependent upon us. He walks through there and he says, may this be me if I don't fulfill this. Okay? He's saying, Paul is saying, go back to the book of Romans now. In the first three verses, how did this thing get its start? It got its start two ways. One, it got its start by grace. God, because Abraham believed, gave him, credited it to him as righteousness, the same way he does in Jesus Christ. So the faith that was, even though Abraham didn't know anything about Jesus, Abraham didn't know anything about this, it was the same exact thing that happened to Abraham that happened all happens to us through Jesus Christ. In fact, Paul's argument here is it's always been about those who believe. X equals five goes all the way back. Sure, they didn't know how it worked out exactly. We do now through Christ, but that's the way it always worked. And secondly, it always goes about because God makes a covenant that is not dependent upon us, right? It's just dependent upon God. Picking up back in Romans 4, picking it up there. He says, now, to the one who works, wages are not credited as a gift, but as an obligation. However, to the one who does not work, but trusts God who justifies the ungodly, their faith is credited as righteousness. So stop right there. What's he saying? He's saying, look at this. If, if Abraham were to walk through those pieces and he had kept his end of the bargain, God would have owed him what the deal was, right? It's, it's not a gift then. It's an obligation. You, you like it's like employment, right? We we even have a, a little cute saying in our in our employee handbook at Hope Community Church. It says, "Salvation is by grace, totally." But employment is by works. <laughs> employment is by works. You, 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 we're all about grace, but but there are things in life that that's the way it works, right? You work, you get paid. You don't work, you you get laid off, or you don't keep your job, right? I mean, that's the way it works. That's not the way this works. All it was is trusting God who actually justifies the ungodly. In other words, I have to recognize that I myself am ungodly. I don't have this coming. I don't deserve this. And then it's credited to me as righteousness. Now he's going to shift gears for just a second. He's going to talk about David, verse 6. David says the same thing when he speaks of the blessedness of the one to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. And he quotes, He says, blessed are those whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord will never count against them. This is a quote from Psalm 32. 
where David is talking about, uh, if you keep on going in the psalm, he ta- he's talking about opening up his heart to some of his own sin in his life. And he says, I was holding on to it. I let it go. I confessed it to you. I brought it forward. In another psalm of David, probably his most famous psalm on the issue of sin is after he does his sin with Bathsheba. So one of our heroes in the Old Testament is a murderer and he has taken an adulterer, at least. Uh, he probably brought Bathsheba in, not on her own will. And so he, he's he's not a good person on this. And he comes before God to seek for forgiveness for this. And he says these words, which are radical. He first confesses his sin, but then he says, you do not delight in sacrifice or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. You, God, will not despise. That's verses 16 and 17 of Psalm 51. Now, when you stop and think about it, you're going, wait a minute. The Old Testament says, bring bring sacrifices. And David is ahead of his time saying, help me out here. How, how does the blood of a bull take away my sin? It doesn't make any sense. And in a sense, it doesn't make sense because all it is is a foreshadowing to Jesus. It's just a foreshadowing to the someone else taking away your sin, but the, but the blood of a bull can never take away your sin, really. And David's ahead of his time here. Let's go back to Romans chapter four, verse nine. Now we're getting back into, uh, getting back into thinking about Abraham. Is this blessedness only for the circumcised, the Jewish person, or also for the uncircumcised, those who are outside? Of Israel. We've been saying that Abraham's faith was credited to him as righteousness. Under what circumstances was it uh, credited? Was it after he was circumcised or before? It was not after, but before. And he received circumcision as a sign, a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. So then he is the father of all who believe, but have not been circumcised in order that righteousness might be credited to them. And he's also the father of the circumcised, who have not only are circumcised, but who also follow in the footsteps of faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. What's he getting after here? He's saying, listen, Abraham wasn't even a member of Israel yet. I know it didn't really kind of exist yet, but he's saying circumcision is kind of what makes them the people of Israel. And uh, the men go through this experience and all their family members then are part of this, this uh, uh, nation, uh, national reality called Israel. And he's saying, listen, Abraham wasn't even that before it happened. So guess what? If you look at this, if you look at the story, X equals five, uh, actually, Abraham wasn't a Jew when he got saved. Abraham uh, if believed. And so in a sense, he's the father of those who weren't circumcised, but he also later gets circumcised, creates faith, or excuse me, creates the nation of Israel and those who believe in that nation, even up to today, in Christ, you are part of this nation. Verse 13, it was not through the law that Abraham and his offspring received the promise that he would be heir of the world, but through the righteousness that comes by faith. Abraham didn't do anything. He didn't walk through the pieces, right? It's not by the law. It's not by doing works. It's not by being uh, all that. For if, verse 14, those who are d- who depend on the law are heirs, faith means nothing, and the promise is worthless because the law brings wrath. And where there is no law, there is no transgression. Therefore, verse 16, the promise comes by faith so that it may be grace and it may be guaranteed to all Abraham's offspring, not only to those who are of law, but also to those who are have the faith of Abraham. He is the father of us all. As it is written, 
I have made you a father of many nations. And that's a key, key passage right there. This this passage right here where it says, I will make you a father of many nations, that is big for uh, the Apostle Paul to say, listen, this, this thing right here was was talked about beforehand in Genesis chapter 17, where he says, I will, all the nations on the earth will be blessed because of you, right? And that he's saying all the Gentiles, all of them. This is, again, he's showing X equals five. This works. He is our father in the sight of God in whom he believed, the God who gives life to the dead and calls into being things that are not. And then he goes into this beautiful phrase about what happened when God trusts or when Abraham trusts God, verse 18, against all hope, Abraham in hope believed and so became the father of many nations. Just as it had been said to him, so shall your offspring be. Without weakening in his, weakening in his faith, he faced the fact that his body was as good as dead since he was about a hundred years old and that Sarah's womb was also dead. Yet he did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God, being fully persuaded that God had power to do what he had promised. Now that 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 section right there, verses 18 to 21, is such a beautiful way of looking at what did it what happened at that moment when Abraham looked at the stars and trusted God. He didn't waver through unbelief. He didn't go, what if, yeah, but, yeah, but. He basically said, God, you have the power to do this. I believe you. I just push all my chips in and I trust you. Verse 22, that is why, Quote, it was credited to him as righteousness, unquote. The words, it was credited to him, were written not for him alone, but also for us, to whom God will credit righteousness. For us who believe in him, who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. He was delivered over uh, to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. Okay, so this, X equals five completely works. And it's very important that you realize that Jesus is not plan B. It wasn't this idea of, okay, Israel, do these rules and if you you need to do them and then they don't do them. And it's like the whole thing falls apart. And God says, oh man, what should I do now? It's not it. That's not it. Jesus was always plan A. It was to show clearly that you cannot do it on your own. So let me give you four implications here that are very important because of Romans chapter four, okay? Number one, how you read the Old Testament is very important. You can read it like the apostle Paul did before he became a follower of Jesus, and he would say, I'm in because I have all of the markers. I am born on the right day. I'm born into the right tribe. I follow all the the law. I've been circumcised. I go to temple. I observe the Sabbath. He's got all the boxes checked. And then he looks at God and basically says, God, you made the rules here, and I checked all the boxes, so you owe me salvation, right? That's the way the Apostle Paul looked at it previous. He meets Jesus Christ in Acts chapter 9, and everything changes, Paul now reads the Old Testament saying, oh my gosh, I had the storyline wrong. So you can read the Old Testament and completely miss Jesus. Like like the, the guy who wrote about a third of our New Testament did for a long part of his life. It must crescendo to de- Jesus. So that's my point number two. As you read the Old, the Old Testament, it must point to Jesus or you're reading it wrong. 
If this isn't pointing to the fact, if you think it has something to do with your righteousness will somehow earn you salvation with God, you're not reading it ultimately correctly. You've got to read it so that it points to Jesus the way the Apostle Paul does here. Three, the only way to be saved is through the work of Jesus Christ. It, it has nothing to do with us being good or trying to pay back God or because somehow we're in the right nation and we believe the right things. That's not it. That's not it. I know a lot of people even say, well, you Christians are so narrow-minded. I mean, you, you just think because you were raised in, in Christianity, then you're going to heaven. And it's like, no, I don't believe being a Christian is what saves me. I don't think happen to be in a church is what saves me. I think Jesus Christ and his, as it says here, his death and resurrection is what saves me. Jesus saves me. And and anything else then doesn't. Otherwise, if anything else could, the words of Jesus to his father in the garden where he says, Father, if it's possible not to go through with this, let's not do it. And the answer is unwritten. We don't, we don't hear it. We don't see it in the, in the scripture. But the answer is there is no other way. You must do this if you want to bring glory back to ourselves so that we can be just and the justifier. And if we want to have mercy upon sinners, there's no other way. And Jesus therefore says, I'll lay down preference and go to the cross because I know it's what I was called to do. The fourth thing is God justifies the ungodly. And that's me. And that's you. Trust him, trust him, not only for salvation, but for everything you're going through this week. Trust the God who looks at you and says, I'm gonna walk through the pieces of, of dead animal here and may this be me if I don't keep my covenant with you of salvation, of care, of loving you, of being merciful to you, of being your God, no matter what we go through together. Next week, we're actually going to take a breath and go into one of the most pastoral and encouraging parts of Romans, Romans 5, 1 to 5. And then two weeks, we'll look at Romans 5, 6 through 11, and that will answer Romans 4, 25. We tickled it a little bit, but I want to highlight it more. It says, wait a minute now, it says he was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. So uh, what does is, what is Christ's resurrection have to do with our salvation? I hope you have a great week in Jesus Christ and that you all week long bask, bask in the God who is for you and not against you. Have a great week. Mm-hmm.